This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. Urban wildlife is a phrase that might spark images of squirrels and backyard birds. But what about raccoons and possums that often hide during the night? Or what about the deer that may be seen around your home or workplace? Today we'll talk about urban wildlife with Dr. Adam Ronke from the Mississippi State University Central Mississippi Research and Extension Center. And as always, Dr. Majors here ready for pet questions. Join our conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday mornings, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Dr. Major. How are things going at the clinic? It's noisy this morning. Uh, we've got a full house, and you may hear some barking and crying. Not crying, but barking <laughs> in the background. So we, it's, it's, it's always, mornings are always pretty noisy. Uh, animals coming in for treatment, uh, surgery, etc., and then some that are hospitalized, but uh, uh, you may be able to hear now in the background a few. I try to not to get too much sound, you know, in our uh, conversations. But anyway, it's been busy, and uh, it's uh, everything's going good. So would you say that uh, as you uh, have a family that brings their pets in there and you see them on a regular basis, that uh, pets, as they come to the vet, seem to be a little bit more or less upset, a little bit more uh, relaxed, or are some pets just always going to be kind of fussy when they go to the vet's office? It varies. Uh, we have some uh, that come in, uh, dogs especially, that are, you know, wagging their tail, coming in to get petted, uh, even though they're getting shots or some treatment. Uh, normally, that's the majority of them, but some of them, you know, the owner almost has to drag them in or carry them in because they they realize that this is not... The normal. We try to be as, what should I say, as pet friendly and as uh, gentle as we can in all our dealings. At the same time, uh, some are just terrified, and that's just the way it will be. But the majority are okay. And uh, I think we had one uh, person yesterday said, "Well, you know, my dog just really, really, really loves to come, loves to ride, and that's one of the things that dogs, most dogs, love to ride in a car." She said, this dog just sat in the back seat looking at everything, did not want to move other than just checking things out. <laughs> I think in my case, my cat, has, it's almost, I get the impression he's like, oh, well, I've got to go here anyway, so I might as well just make the best out of it. So. Right. And, of course, cats, cats are a little bit different story. Uh, I always recommend having a carrier for the cat mm-hmm. rather than trying to bring the cat or drive with the cat uh, loose in the car. Strange things can happen. A uh, cat could get terrified for some reason and jump on your head or or something like that. Uh, get under the brake pedal. Uh, we've had to extract a few cats out from under the seat, which is hard to do once they get under there. <laughs> so I'm just saying it's it's good to have a carrier when you travel with your cat, whether it's going to the vet or vacation or you know just any time you have your cat out because they can. 
if they get away, uh, they're going to be quite fearful and difficult to catch a lot of time. Yeah, and uh, I would say that uh, anyone that's seen a cat hiding somewhere knows that if uh, you investigate and they don't want any, you, the, probably the first thing you're going to get is a paw uh, filled with claws swiping at you. So you do have to be careful. Well, well there's some security with the uh, the carrier, uh, and that's that's one of the main things that the cat uh, appreciates, I think. Uh, so we're going to be talking about urban wildlife today. Uh, what would you say is the most common occurrence of our pets and urban wildlife? Maybe dogs, curious dogs and snakes? I would say between snakes and other wildlife like raccoons uh, or opossums. But uh, this time of year, of course, there are plenty of snakes out and about. And uh, dogs are curious. Cats are curious. Cats are a little bit quicker and rarely get bitten uh, by a snake. We do see some cats that come in, and the owner says, gosh, it's got to be a snake bite. But usually it's another cat bite that is swollen and starting to abscess, so that's a common occurrence in the cat. Uh, most of our dogs, uh, I'd, I'd say snakes are probably number one as far as uh, encounters, but also uh, toads. Uh, we have plenty of toads around. Most dogs will put a toad in their mouth and decide that's not what they needed because they don't taste too good, and they usually won't bother a toad again after that. Uh, raccoons, uh, you know, we see raccoons there, and I'm sure Adam will address that, but their raccoons are pretty plentiful in urban neighborhood, and uh, that's an encounter that does happen quite often. All right, and then uh, with cats, uh, folks who have outdoor cats know, well, everybody knows cats are really good hunters, but a lot of uh, cat owners who have their pets outdoors sometimes get a little present in the form of a mouse or a bird. Uh, What's a pet owner to do? The cat thinks that that's what they're supposed to do, and I think if I remember correctly from what I've read, it's they're sort of offering that up as, hey, look what I've caught for you or whatever. So how should a cat owner handle if their cat's bringing home uh, presents like that? You know, I'm not so sure that the cat is bringing it. Maybe it is bringing it to share. I don't know. Uh, that's that's always been a question in my mind. I pick it up, thank the cat, and dispose of it. It's the best thing to do. And uh, you know, there are there are some parasites that uh, mice and rats, especially, can transmit. Uh, tapeworms would be one of the uh, the things uh, that can be transmitted to to cats and. Uh, also, they may have fleas, so it's it's good to dispose of it as quickly as possible, uh, sanitarily, yeah. All right. Uh, before our first break, uh, let's go to the phone lines for a bit. Let's start with a pet question coming from Becky in Jackson. Good morning, Becky. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Um, I just have a question about the Apoquil, because uh, okay. I have two dachshunds, and I have one that's on the Apoquil, and it's $91 a month, but... Someone told me that it shortens the lifespan of the dog. Is that true? Uh, not to my knowledge. If you go on online, you'll see a lot of different things. Uh, okay. There are pros and cons. We use a fair amount of Apoquil and have not seen that, that issue. There's another okay, drug yeah. called Cytopoint. It's given by injection, which is very effective. Uh, okay. And... You might talk to your vet about uh, the differences in those. That sounds like quite a bit uh, of money for a dachshund, unless he's a huge dachshund. 
uh, <laughs> I would I would say that uh, you might compare you might compare Cytopoint is is effective and usually lasts for about a month to six weeks, so that might be an option for you. Okay. okay thank you. Thank you. And I You're appreciate thank you being you, on that air. Thanks, Becky. We appreciate your call. Uh, let's uh, stay on the phone lines here in this first segment and talk to our friend John Davis, who calls in from Jackson. Good morning, John. You're on the air with us. Well, thank you. I'd like to talk about the pleasures of doing behavioral observations on <laughs> two species of birds that are so successful in cities that uh, most people think of them as pets. But I'm a bad citizen. I adore them. The first is that all-conquering Eurasian weaver bird, the uh, the English sparrow. Uh, I love their cheekiness. I love their good cheer. They're sort of a Dickensian. But anyone who looks at the males notice they have a medallion on their breast, and the medallion varies with size. Apparently, that medallion undergoes uh, evolution in response to female choice, sex selection, the other great driver of evolution. It gets larger or it gets smaller, depending on what the girls like. (laughs) So something you can do that's great fun is just look at a number of English starlings in your yard or wherever. You'll recognize individual males by their medallions soon, and you can put them into groups by, by, by size of the medallion, big ones and smaller ones, and get some idea of the frequency of each. And that's real research that serious folks are doing. The other one that only, only bad citizens like is the uh, starling. It's an astonishingly beautiful bird in the male plumage, and uh, it's it's able to mimic human speech. Hmm. But the interesting thing there are the gorgeous patterns their flocks form. Anyone who has spent some time watching these know that they're like a species of abstract art, and there are people interested in group behavior that seriously study how they form. So you have our wonderful little hand cameras now on our phones. Try, if you are lucky enough, to see some starling blocks to take up pictures of them and see if you can put them in categories. Again, there seem to be fewer large blocks of starlings around here than before, to the great relief of some folks at agriculture and bird purists. <laughs> but I miss them, and you can have fun with them. All right, uh, John, good to hear from you. That's you know sounds like some citizen science, maybe a good project uh, if you want to get your kids interested in the na- in nature. Uh, you know the the categorizing and that helps uh, with all sorts of additional you know kind of math skills as well. So, John, appreciate that good idea there. It is time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll dive into urban wildlife with our guest for today, Dr. Adam Ronke from the MSU Central Mississippi Research and Extension Center. Dr. Major will be out here throughout the hour ready for your pet questions. So call with questions and comments. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. 
This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major. If you want to join the conversation with a question or comment, phone lines are open at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. So our guest for today is uh, an old friend MS from the MSU Urban Wildlife Program, Adam Ronke. Adam, it's been, according to my script, 1918 since you last been on the show, so we certainly appreciate you having us back. Uh, remind us a little bit about your background and your current work with Mississippi State. Well, you scared me there for a second. I thought you were referring to the year 1918. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling older for sure, but not that old. Uh, yes, I'm, uh, I've kind of had a slight title change. I was already kind of doing it uh, with a couple different things, but my focus now is on urban wildlife. Uh, so I'm technically an urban wildlife specialist for Mississippi State University Extension, um, and that basically includes all critters, good, bad, and ugly, uh, in the urban uh, metro areas of, of Jackson, but also uh, even in our smaller communities, which can have an urban influence in people's backyards, and how do you uh, uh, manage uh, uh, wildlife in, in, in those different scenarios. Uh, and you brought along a couple of folks with you. If you could introduce who's with the studio with you. Yeah, I've been very lucky the last couple of years, and in particularly this year, uh, to be part of a, an apprenticeship program with the Extension Service uh, that's based out of uh, our main campus in Starkville, uh, run by uh, Dr. Marina Denny. And I've got two of our apprentices here this uh, summer that are helping us out, getting our urban wildlife program on the map, uh, literally. Um, but uh, I have uh, Becca Burks here, who's from Hendricks College. She's been here since, uh, I guess, the end of May, early June. And then also uh, Gregory Leland, who's an MSU student. Uh, he is our mapping guru and our tech guru, helping us uh, build our website and also our mapping uh, uh, program that we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, before we get too deep into urban wildlife, we do have a caller on the line, I think, that wants to talk about birds. So let's say good morning to uh, Rachel from Eupora. Rachel, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. morning. So uh, yesterday, sitting out in my front yard, I looked across the street, and in one of my neighbor's trees uh, was a pileated woodpecker. Now, I don't know if I said that correctly. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Sorry? Yes, ma'am. That's perfect, perfect. Okay. Uh, I did cite one, and I saw one about three years ago in my backyard. And so I'm wondering, maybe is there uh, a um, a, um, a, re- a resident bird or taking up nesting area in your yard? Is that what you're no, asking? I, no, I just w- I'm not really asking that. I'm just uh, wondering if they are permanent around here. Yes, they are one of our resident uh, woodpeckers. Uh, for uh, other listeners that may be not familiar with pileated woodpeckers, um, they are our largest uh, native woodpecker here, resident woodpecker. They are actually nearly the size of a crow. So if you can imagine a large crow uh, now kind of situated on the side of a tree with a very large red crest and large bill, um, they're very loud uh, uh, with their own uh, calls, but uh, also can make noise uh, through the, the actual hammering on the tree, which can be quite uh, quite loud. And you can also see them active on uh, dead trees, uh, particularly laying on the ground of, of the forest floor. You can see them in suburban areas. You can see them in our uh, city parks. We've actually seen them this summer with our some of our urban work. Um, but uh, they're a really cool, really cool bird. And uh, 
lot of people, the first time they see them, are, are, are floored on their size. They are, they are a very large uh, woodpecker. All right, Rachel, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today uh, with Adam Ronke, and we're going to be talking about um, urban wildlife, which I think um, right off the bat a lot of folks might think that that's sort of a mishmash. And then, <laughs> So what, what exactly is it when we mean when we talk about urban wildlife? Well, yeah, it's. Um, I, I keep going back to the good, good, bad, and ugly of uh, ur- urban wildlife uh, because I deal with all different sides of it. But when we're talking about urban wildlife, one, we're talking about the geographic space that we're in. Um, so we'll use, obviously, since we're here in Mississippi, we'll use the largest area, which is the Jackson Metro. Uh, urban wildlife can really be anywhere from downtown, like Smith Park, um, uh, downtown Jackson, all the way out to Canton and beyond uh, in the kind of the the, uh, the metro region of our, our three-county region. Um, but those species are no different than when you're in the rural areas in Mississippi. It's it's still a raccoon. It's the same raccoon that happens to live in an urban area. Uh, opossums, squirrels, my, my students are looking at me. We've seen lots of squirrels this year uh, with our with our study. Um, but uh, it's also urban, uh, urban birds. Um, Dr. Major was talking about uh, uh, snakes and other reptiles and amphibians. It's all basically the same critters that are living in the urban space. And in some cases, when that space changes, when it intensifies into more urban areas, we have some species that drop out just basically because they can't adapt to those different uh, 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 settings and and contexts of of the urban areas. And some actually do better in those areas, and uh, we can talk about that later. Uh, but but obviously, as you said, it's the same raccoon, but the one in the urban setting, as you alluded to, has possibly adapted its behavior to fit its new surroundings? Yes, yeah. So um, there's kind of different categories uh, that we use for urban wildlife. There's, there's obligates uh, that are what we call human obligates. So that would be like our domestic animals. Dr. Major was talking about cats. Someone was asking about I but you brought it up, the outdoor cats. They're very, very dependent on humans in our native uh, landscape. And there's other critters, but cats is a good example uh, of that. Uh, then there's a group called kind of the exploiters, and that would be the raccoons, opossums. Um, they rely heavily on direct food um, or other other uh, substance uh, from humans, but they're also omnivores, so they can eat a lot of different things. So they don't need us to be there, but they do even better because they associate with us in our urban urban areas. And then we have another category called ad- uh, uh, adapters, which is to be the white-tailed deer. They, as we know, they really don't necessarily need us, but they can adapt very well and literally eat the weeds out of the cracks of our, our parking lots in, 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 in Jackson. They can also eat your rose bushes um, and eat from your bird feeders. But they don't, it's not a requirement. They don't need that from us to survive because obviously they do very well in our more rural areas. Um, and then there's a last category, what we call human avoiders. Um, which even there is some flex in that definition. That would be more like the bobcats, gray fox, some more of our secretive uh, uh, critters. But they're still in the urban, what we call matrix, uh, because they're passing through or they're moving through these these different uh, uh, configurations of land and how we use them. So that's kind of how we break them up in the in the sciencey nerdy side of things. Um, but uh, again, they're the same critters. Just some do better to adapting to being around us, and some actually thrive, and then others actually what we call avoid um, and, and back away from the situation. You know, as you mentioned, Mississippi would be considered a rural state. So, w- how do you define what urban is? It is, is it any <laughs> kind of town setting? Is it a population? 
Revolution part? Boy, there, there's so many papers on that. <laughs> uh, there's actually been endless uh, symposium on how do we define urban. Uh, and I wish my, my good friend uh, that works up in Cleveland Metro Parks was listening now because he has a paper that this came out on that. Uh, it is very open um, term and a lot of argument on how you define urban. Uh, but in, in the general sense, you know, um, it, people have a feeling when they, when they know they're in an urban space. Now, I always joke because we work with uh, 35 other cities on this project that we're talking about today. Um, you know, there's Chicago urban, there's Atlanta urban, and then I have the term that we use for our project here in partnership with those guys. I call it Mississippi urban. Um, <laughs> so if you've ever been to Chicago, Jackson is literally smaller than most of their major suburbs. Um, so... There's a urban mentality, both with the human aspect of it. People have an urban mentality, how they manage their, their, their landscape, how they maybe manicure their lawn, this and that. And that can be applied in the most rural areas of Mississippi. Um, but in the general term, how, how we're defining urban landscape, it's going to typically be defined by the landscape features. So we're looking at um, what we call more impervious surface, more concrete, more pavement. Uh, there's going to be a higher percentage of that on the given landscape. Um, and then also, obviously, you're going to have a lot more human structures, roads, other infrastructure that typically are not going to be find, found in the more rural areas. So for Jackson, our downtown core is going to be around downtown Jackson. Basically, State Street is a great kind of midsection of that and run up the I-55 corridor. And then quickly, it's going to disperse out into more suburbs and what we call ex-urban, which kind of gets outside of just the, the suburbs and then get out to the rural areas from there. That's typically how we define it here. But I think it would be interesting, and I wonder if maybe some of the research is the the differences between the urban, urban Chicago type urban versus the urban Mississippi type urban. Uh, yes, and that's why we're part of this this project. Um, it's a thirty five city partnership. Uh, it's called the Urban Wildlife Information Network, and that was the very reason they were interested in, uh, when I actually met them at a conference about Jackson joining. One, they needed more cities from the south. Um, just to have the geographic reference, but they are also looking for those different size cities. So this partnership includes the Chicago's, the New York's, uh, multiple partners in L.A., Seattle, but it also has Iowa, um, Iowa City, Jackson, and then some other cities that are even much smaller than Jackson. Again, still declared as cities, you know, by our definition, um, but very, very different. And even cities that are almost exactly the same as far as their size and declared by the Census Bureau as being a large urban center, the Atlanta is a lot different than, say, like uh, uh, an L.A. or a Seattle because of their topography out there in the West. They can be very concentrated in, in, in valleys. They can be very long, very narrow, whereas Atlanta – as we've flown into Atlanta recently, it goes in every which direction. You know, the ongoing joke is that one day Jackson will be a suburb of Atlanta. <laughs> um, so it's not constrained by some landscape features. So just the shape and the intensity of, of these, these, these cities can very much drive how wildlife respond to that. Uh, so why, what's the importance, do you think, of studying urban wildlife? Well, one, um, since I'm an extension agent, it's the people. Um, that's why you have this show. Uh, a lot of a lot of the phone calls that you get are not only about pets, um, but it's also about um, uh, wildlife in our backyards. And a lot of people, and more and more, are going to be living in more city uh, uh, type uh, situations. Uh, so, particularly in Mississippi, since I've been here starting my seventeenth year, can you believe that, Kevin? <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, uh, in two weeks. Um, 
they're intrinsically tied to the land uh, being a rural state. And I think even our city dwellers like ourselves still hold on to that very tightly. And obviously that directly connects uh, to the wildlife for that, uh, that are a part of that. Uh, so one, just the general uh, inert interest in wildlife from humans in general, but particularly here in Mississippi. Uh, but it's also really important for Again, I get back to the good, bad, and the ugly. That would be the good part. But sometimes we have what we call human-wildlife conflict issues. Um, Dr. Major was talking about that with the, the snakes and, and dogs and things like that. Most people would consider that a conflict issue. That's not, not a positive. Um, so we try to, through our research that we're working on here today, but also other projects, try to figure out how we can mitigate that, not only for humans but also for the animal. Because typically that negative conflict is not going to end well for that critter. We've, I think we've heard enough. Uh, there's been an uptick in, in, in bear, uh, bear interactions out west uh, for various reasons. And typically a fed bear is a dead bear is the kind of saying in, in, our, in our business. Um, so those negative interactions can be really, really negative for humans but extremely negative for, and lethal for, for those critters. So trying to figure out ways that we can negotiate and work in these, in these areas together and, and, and cohabitate these areas, hopefully beneficial for both uh, sides of that coin. So why don't we all just get along? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. But, uh, but yeah, that's really why I think it's important. And then also, um, you know, what we call ecological services. Um, you know, there, there's a reason why a lot of our cities are around rivers. There's a reason why we like having green space. Um, even way, way back, New York City, you know, uh, setting apart uh, Central Park. We need that as humans, um, not only for our own psyche and, and, and uh, well-being, um, but we also need that for ecological services in the sense of, like, cleaning our water, uh, storm runoff, things like that. So it's very complicated, but there's a lot of different uh, reasons why it's important. We're going to take another break. When we get back, we'll continue to look at urban wildlife with our guests. We have in studio with us today Adam Ronke, Becca Burke, and Greg Leland. Also, Dr. Major's on the phone, ready for your pet questions. So call with questions and comments. Our phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast... I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guests for the hour from the Mississippi State Urban Wildlife Program are Adam Ronke, Becca Burke, and Greg Leland. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app or subscribe to the MPB Public Media app. That way you get to listen to all of the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. To join our conversation this morning, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, more talk about urban wildlife in just a minute, but we've got a couple of callers on the line. Let's start in Natchez. CC has a pet question. Good morning. You're on the air. Go ahead. 
Good morning. I have a question for Dr. Majors. I have Labrador retrievers, and uh, one of them consistently gets fatty tumors. Uh, what causes those, and at what point should I be concerned and have them removed? Good question, and we do see a lot of uh, uh, fatty-type fatty tumors. Uh, some dogs get them quite extensively. I don't have the actual, uh, what shall I say, genetic reason for that, but they do seem to be in certain bloodlines more. I usually would like to leave them alone unless they're causing uh, restriction in movement or they're uh, maybe occluding the uh, juggler area around the neck. And certainly a biopsy can rule out another type of tumor, which could, could be there. This is a benign thing, and there are lipomas that are considered to be, what should I say, malignant, but not uh, in the nature of, say, an osteosarcoma or uh, a fiber-type tumor. So I would say unless they're causing an issue, I would leave them alone. Does that clarify anything for you? It certainly does. Thank you. All right, well, good question, and they're very common. Uh, it's not just a lab lab issue. Just about, I would say, over the years, I've seen them just about every uh, every breed of dog. All right, CC, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Let's let's go to uh, David calling in from Mobile. David, go ahead. It's your turn. Hello. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm calling because. Uh, I've uh, heard a, a previous listener talking about uh, woodpeckers, and it brought up a question that I've had for a long time. Woodpeckers whack their heads against trees every day of their lives, and they don't get concussions. And I'm wondering, has anybody looked at that, like how they avoid having their brains rattled when when they're doing that? Yeah, a short answer is uh, it's it's structural. Uh, there's... Uh, Basically, how the 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 brain, or sorry, the the um, the skull is basically put together. There's also some specialized bones in the skull, and in addition to the tongue, a lot of people don't know this with woodpeckers. Um, the tongue is extremely long and comes together basically as a an arrow or a fork. Um, and it wraps all the way to the back of their, their head. That's how they can extend that out into the cavities that they uh, excavate. So a combination of the, the structure, but also having a tongue that literally attaches to the back of your head um, provides additional uh, uh, cushion, essentially. That muscle provides some additional cushion uh, in there. So uh, woodpeckers are unique in a lot of different ways, but that's the kind of the short and quick uh, answer to that. Is there um, uh, is there a good reference for... Uh, for what you just said, because I'm, I'm thinking it might be useful for football helmets. Yes, uh, uh, they've actually looked at uh, uh, some of that. I don't have the exact uh, reference uh, to that re- regarding uh, NFL and, and football uh, injuries. Uh, but, yeah, if you go to All About uh, Birds or just type in uh, – you could type any of the woodpecker species in and go to Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Um, that will get you a great link to not only identification and their song, but a lot of the neat stories that come along with woodpeckers and other bird species. All right, uh, David, thanks for your call. So Tom Brady needs to grab his tongue and stretch it around to the back of his head. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, okay. so I'm going to act like you didn't mention Tom Brady on this. I love coming here, Kevin, uh, but uh, I'm just going to disregard uh, the Tom Brady comment. I, I, I actually hope he doesn't wear a helmet in the next game he plays, but we'll move on from that. But that thing Adam, is, Adam, 
Adam, this is Troy. You would have to say that the woodpecker has built-in shock absorbers. I think it would be a good way to describe it. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's exactly uh, how, it, how it should be described. And you are never too old to learn anything. And I, I might be making myself sound dumber than I am, but I never realized, you know, you think of the pecking. Well, I never realized they were trying to peck in to get their tongue in there to get something to eat, but obviously that's why they're drumming on the trees. Yeah, it's yeah for for basically three reasons: to, to excavate uh, for for cavity. Um, in a lot of cases, those cavities are used by other birds, also uh, uh, secondary cavity uh, nesters, but uh, also uh, for food, uh, and then and also to, to make noise uh, for uh, reproduction, uh, just like. Other birds use call, so they can use that for their Or to annoy the human sleeping in the house in which they're drumming on the uh, gutters. Yes, exactly. I I get those calls about twice a week at least. Okay, uh, in the studio with Adam are Becca Burke and Greg Leland. We'd like to talk to them for a little bit. Uh, Becca, let's start with you. Uh, What is your involvement in the Urban Wildlife Program and, and the studies that are going on? Oh, thank you so much. So I uh, go to school at Hendricks College in uh, Conway, Arkansas. That's really close to Little Rock, the capital. And actually, the Urban Wildlife Information Network has um, a partner city in Little Rock. So I've worked with them over the past year before coming here. Um, and that's actually how I found out about this opportunity is uh, through a Slack message, basically <laughs> work social media. So um, I am more of like the ecology side since I've had a lot of experience with the camera studies and um, now I'm also working, Adam calls it the public facing side of the project where, um, I get to like kind of build this community engagement tool from the front side and, uh, which is called the ArcGIS story map. It's basically just a cool website you can put maps on really easy to access and navigate for someone who, you know, even if you have a lot of web experience or a little bit, it's really easy to scroll through. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to, what we've been doing so far at least is, uh, putting information there about our sites and our, and our parks and being able to share that with the public, hopefully, when we get it up. Mm-hmm. So the the map sto- the the wildlife story maps, uh, Adam is uh, uh, what's the ultimate goal there? Yeah. So real quickly, so we're part of this UN network, which I, I mentioned before is thirty five cities. So thirty five cities are monitoring wildlife, urban wildlife populations, all the same way. I mentioned that all the cities are so different, so we standardize how we do it. So bottom line, if you look at Jackson and you uh, look at a map on Google Maps or just in your head and you made a cross, essentially, going up State Street to, from downtown Jackson to, to uh, Gluckstadt and then from Clinton over to Brandon, we have two lines. And on those lines, we have uh, 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 people call trail cameras we call them camera traps out and we have about 42 of them we're getting up to 60 so we're taking all that imagery that we're getting and then our master naturalist volunteers and other volunteers from the community are identifying those pictures we're taking that information and turning it into data to see what animals we have where at what time of the year we do that four times a year for a month at a time so we're taking that information that we're getting from the ground and then we're combining that with the 42 sites that becca uh, was talking about and she's working on like the historical analysis what was this site you know 200 years ago when was the site turned into a park what's going on in the park so we can from a science side look at is it something in the land cover type or the 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 park itself that's helping dictate the critters that are there Uh, but also as an engagement tool just to engage people back in their parks to learn more about the history of the park and then combine that with the wildlife information that we're finding Uh, so the story map is combining maps 
data and the cool stories that she's she's finding and creating and putting it in one spot. So basically, anything you see on any of the the major news, NPR will say, MPB, uh, with with uh, maps and anything that interacts real easily on web is typically a, a story map. So it's just putting all that information together so it's fun to play with uh, in a digital format. Um, also in the studio with us is Greg Leland. Greg, uh, talk a little bit about uh, your uh, involvement with the project. Uh, yeah, so as Adam had just said, that the there's a, lot, a bunch of different sites, uh, 42 different sites, and then the, uh, Becca uh, puts all together the historical information for that. My side is the, the tech side with the computers and whatnot and the mapping. So all those sites have to have somewhere to be. All those sites have to have somewhere that you can look at to understand where they're at. So my job is a lot more to put together that into a, a, a way that looks like, like a Google map or like a, your GPS. So uh, that's a lot more what I do. And then also putting together any of our other resources like videos and whatnot together onto the story map. So that way we have an interactive and engaging way to put together a story for everyone. And I guess an important part of this is to make it entertaining and engaging to, to get the average person that might want something that maybe Becca found out you know, from the cultural history, but it brings them in there and then exposes them to all this other information as well. Exactly. Yeah, so we're looking at kind of multifold. You know, it's going to be a home site for, for our overall project. Uh, but ultimately what they're designing is the, the, the precursor to our our community engagement tool. So they're getting a uh, strong foundation with his mapping and GIS skills and other uh, tech, uh, tech skills, Becca's ecological skills and storytelling uh, skills, uh, and putting that all together to make it fun and engaging. Uh, but we're also hoping it serves multiple purposes as we grow this program. One from just being a cool site to find out cool information about, particularly someone like myself that is not uh, a native uh, to Jackson. It's been fun learning about all these parks and why they're named, why uh, the names they are and why they were located uh, where they are and, and all the different historical events that have taken place uh, that. So it's just, if you're kind of a history buff anyways, it's really interesting from that. Uh, but we're looking... Eventually, this 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 platform will allow the community to get involved once we release it here uh, in the next five to six months um, to where they can start posting their stories about their park and the things they're seeing in their park for that aspect, and then obviously connect them to that wildlife information. But what we're hoping as we go down four or five years uh, with this research that we can start using this website to also make maps where we can use it for predictive purposes. So say a new subdivision is going in, in one of our uh, suburban areas. We'll have data for that area that can maybe help them inform their decision-making process to make a better plan to where we can reduce future human wildlife uh, negative, particularly negative, and also the positive side. How can we maybe put that subdivision in there based off of this data that they've provided us to make it more wildlife friendly. So that's big picture stuff. That's really where I'd like to see it in the you know, next five to eight years. Uh, but we're at the very uh, front end of this project. I like the, the the element of the the sort of the citizen science you're saying that you know eventually people will be able to go to learn about uh, their particular part of their city, uh, but also they can add in you know what they've been seeing, the things that they they've been finding. That's I think that's really great, and again that is a good way to get the community involved. Uh, but this isn't necessarily a listing of every 
squirrel in Jackson, I guess. How, how do you decide what data to put in there, you know, what's relevant and what's not? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and it's super complicated, and that's why my colleague uh, Dana Morin on, on campus, uh, she calls herself our math person. Uh, she's our modeler, essentially. It's called occupancy modeling. So what we're trying to do is determine what critters are there and when they're not there, and then a lot of complicated math takes place to get a, a good conservative estimate of what critters are present on the landscape and when. Um, I'll leave it there just because it gets really, like, I have to start drawing on the wall and stuff like that. Well, I don't think we want to get there. And I'll probably be wrong, and Dana would have to correct me. Um, but in addition to uh, uh, Becca and Gregory, we have a uh, student, uh, Brittany, uh, who, who wanted to be here today but had a conflict. And she's working uh, on some of that modeling from our just our initial monitoring purposes. But she's also looking uh, at, at something uh, that we call anthropoge anthropogenic subsidies. You ready for a big fancy word from the university? aka trash, leftover food, uh, bird feeders, things like that, where she's working on her study around these sites. She's actually doing a human survey of how people behave with those those subsidies in their own yard and then combining that with our, our, uh, our camera uh, trap data uh, to try and see if there's any relationship to how people are behaving around those parks. In addition to all those landscape features I talked about, how much impervious surface do we have, how much tree cover do we have, how big are these parks. Um, there's even studies that are looking at that we're a part of looking at, say, like a Madison to southwest Jackson and how different those communities are as far as lot size, um, landscaping uh, uh, management, all those different things. And how does the social and cultural structural uh, elements and also to um, uh, the landscape features, how can they help us predict and get an idea of where these critters are in the landscape? So it, it's really uh, neat stuff. Um, but yeah, in, in, in a nutshell, as far as the math goes, it's, it's complicated, uh, but it is a conservative estimate. We're not identifying specific critters saying squirrel a is here all the time we're just doing a presence absence uh, um, and then and then and multiplying it up uh, with that uh, with all the fun stuff that they do in the stats program uh, with that but uh, in a nutshell that's how how we're doing it but as far as how like this program works so we're, we're doing green spaces across jackson so we mentioned parks but we're also using schoolyards so we're partnering with school districts all of our uh, jackson city has been critical uh, for this project obviously being an urban study um, but then all our uh, support Supporting uh, um, suburban uh, towns like Brandon, Clinton's, Ridgeland, Madison. They've all helped us by giving us access to their parks. Um, and then also uh, cemeteries and golf courses. Our, our local and uh, publicly owned and privately owned golf courses have been critical to giving us access to, to their properties to put cameras on to, to do this survey. So it's been a lot of fun. We're going to take one final break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guests. We're visiting with Becca Burke, Greg Leland, and Adam Ronke, all from the Urban Wildlife Program at the Mississippi State University Extension Service. If you have a question, still time to join in with a phone call. Dr. Major still on the line as well looking for pet questions. The number to call if you'd like to join in today, one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email animals at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 
or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major. If you want to join our conversation with a phone call, still time, one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can always send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And if you have a want to send an email, you can send it in at any time during the show, of course, but also during the week. If you send that in, we'll uh, read it and see if we can put it on the air and get you an answer. And again, anytime you see a creature out and about that you'd like uh, more information about, try to snap a picture of it with your smartphone, and we'll see if we can't find out what it is or what you're looking for about what you've taken a picture of. We're going to wrap up with urban wildlife in just a minute, but we've sparked an interest in woodpeckers apparently today. So let's uh, go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. You're on the air. Good morning. I'd like to ask you a question. Um, Mother Nature must have put out a no-fly zone over South Perry County because I don't, I don't see any birds or hear any birds at dawn or dusk anymore. There are two uh, cattle egrets that fly back and forth in front of the house, but I haven't seen a, a one bumblebee this whole year and, and those two cattle egrets. And now I got to think about that, that woodpecker that was supposed to be extinct in the, what was that, in a swamp in Arkansas somewhere. Is it still considered extinct, or did they ever find another living bird? I, uh, you're referring to the ivory bill woodpecker, I assume? Yes, uh-huh. Yes. Um, I, I hate to say I'm not exactly 100% sure what the current status of that is. I know there, uh, actually, it was actually the first year that I moved down here, and I actually went over uh, to Arkansas with some of my colleagues uh, during that, and I actually knew some of the folks with Cornell Lab of Ornithology uh, that were working on that project. As far as I know, there hasn't uh, been another current sighting, uh, but I'll be speaking beyond my uh, current knowledge of uh, of that, but I don't think there has been uh, other sightings uh, since that, that time. Um, but obviously there's still still interest and in research going on in that in that area. All right, uh, Sue, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Adam, we talked about the, the trail cams or the, the capture cam that you have set up. Uh, any interesting images that you've seen uh, on on those cameras? Yeah, yeah we, we actually found one yesterday. Um, so I, I just want to highlight particularly my master naturalists. Uh, they, if we had everyone in the studio, Kevin, we wouldn't have room for you in here. Uh, they've been helpful on this project. I'm not going to name any specific names, but we have 12 to 15 really, really dedicated master naturalists. And none of this would happen uh, without them. Just to give you an idea, so far, we've only been doing this, uh, we just crossed our two-year mark. We've already processed over 50,000 images um, from these cameras. We have another 25,000 that are waiting to be processed, and the cameras are out currently, which will typically on average bring in about ten to 13,000 more images. And we're only at 42 cameras. We're going up to 60. So if it wasn't for those 15, 16 people from Master Naturalist, none of this would happen. And let me add one more thing. And each of those images have to be looked at twice by two different individuals. So I said 50,000, so, but it's really 100,000 views have to be. And they have to look at every image separately and go through everything and count everything that they see. And then we have to verify that. So it's a lot of work that just goes into getting the data, let alone putting, they're putting the cameras out for us. They're managing it. They're processing the imagery. Um, it's critical without uh, uh, not having our master naturalist. Uh, it wouldn't be possible with that. So it's a lot of work, but kind of uh, quick facts, like we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, a, a, a sports game here. We've got 32 species of mammals and 
birds so far. Um, some of the highlights are, uh, as most people know, gray squirrels are not going anywhere. It's gray squirrels galore. <laughs> um, uh, some interests we have, and, and this is not a fear campaign, we have some coyotes that are near downtown. I won't give you exactly where they are. Uh, they're doing doing well and using uh, the Pearl River Corridor and, and areas like that. Uh, but we do have them in, in downtown uh, uh, Jackson, which is with all the other 35 partners, has been pretty common. Coyotes do very, very well in urban areas. Uh, we have bobcats in the suburbs. Uh, again, I won't name any specific town because I don't need 15,000 calls on fears of bobcats. There's nothing to fear with these animals. They're they're interacting in our space and doing just, just fine. Um, but uh, some of the other highlights, uh, Becca actually found one yesterday as she was working on one of our, our sites that I'll let her describe uh, to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we were... Um Smith Park, you know, a lovely park in the middle of downtown Jackson, was looking through some photos to put on our website, and uh, I found a wonderful picture of a squirrel running with what seems to be a piece of pizza in its mouth that is the size <laughs> of the piece. squirrel. Full piece. <laughs> Full piece. We were, we were arguing if it was uh, a section of uh, quesadilla or if it was uh, pizza, but I think uh, Becca was correct in that it's pizza. Some other really cool highlights. So I just saw that we got imagery back. Um, of a red-shouldered hawk coming down, attacking something. I can't see what it is, but you can see it in full full motion coming down. Um, another really neat one was last year during the flooding. Um, uh, we saw a lot of interesting activity, but I thought it was a river otter at once, but it was actually a large nutrient rat in center field at Wilcock <laughs> Park in Ridgeland. So interesting things that we're finding on the cameras. And a uh, a squirrel with a piece of pizza in its mouth, I think, is the perfect definition of urban wildlife. Exactly <laughs> right, man. It's it's adapting. It's adapting. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, funding and provided by part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can find it at mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major and our guests, Adam Ronke, Becca Burks, and Greg Leland, I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.